want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode and all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes ad-free, head to our Patreon, patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room for $5 a month. You get all of our ad-free episodes, our video interviews, and our bonus episodes. See you there. One of the people I spoke with very clearly said, if they touch another one of us, we have to become ungovernable. It'll be a fight to the death and we have to win. And these are people who've already been through this. They don't want to go through it again. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is a rarity for me because... Usually I only have one other person or I have a co-host, but I actually have two very queer male, very queer, no, very, but queer male intellects in the house here. Um, I mean, I'm very gay, um, as you all know here. Uh, talked about my Fire Island nude experiences. Listen to that from September if you haven't heard it. Um, but I'm here with Marty Padgett who Marty has his MFA from the University of Georgia's Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication. He received the prestigious 2019 Lambda Literary Fellowship. He lives in a, well, he did, I think, live in Atlanta and he might I not did. now, yeah. but he did live in Atlanta. And I think now you live in Pensacola, Florida. Is that right? Yes. I okay. decided that the politics in Georgia weren't enough, so I doubled down. Yeah, to really be in the thick of it all. Um, and then I'm also joined with Eric Solomon, who is a visiting assistant professor of American Studies and English at Emory Oxford College. Oh, yeah. What is well, Oxford College? OK, it's a college of Emory is what I'm assuming. Is that true, Eric? Yeah, it's okay. actually the original campus. And we are the first two years freshmen, sophomores. It's about 30 minutes outside of Atlanta. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, so you're in the Atlanta area, the Atlanta metropolis. Um, he received his PhD in English from Emory um, and his BA in English and Spanish from the University of Mississippi. Um, so I'm really excited because I've been talking with Eric and he's working on his new book. So hopefully Queer Straits, Desire Lines at the Southernmost all about Key West and the queer imagination will be coming out soon. Maybe you can tease us about it as we talk. Um, but for all of you out there, I met Eric and Marty at the uh, Queer History Conference in San Francisco, which there's been a lot of guests from there here. Dominic Janes, um, Jesse Tade with Queer Modernisms. Um, I think actually it just came out as we're now recording, not when we're actually officially recording, but, you know, there's a little wait period, everyone. That's the behind the scenes. Um, but Rachel Hope uh, Cleaves, um, her book, Unspeakable, uh, we just talked about that. So, yeah, there's a lot if you want to, you know, go through the catalog. But I am so excited to talk with you both about your queer Southern gay LGBTQ journalism meets net literary narrative of sorts. So yeah, welcome. Um, and I think I want to just pose this question to you two and 
you know, however you want to bounce this ball back and forth, I'd be happy to let you <laughs> handle that. But what, growing up in the South, right? I'm from New Jersey, uh, now on Long Island. So I haven't left the Northeast. Um, if not, I'm even more suburbanized. Um, so growing up in the South, what it was that experience like, maybe even before you quote unquote came out, like just knowing that there's some desire I'm feeling that is not the norm. Like I'm not fitting into this uh, Ole Miss. I don't know why I'm using, well, I'll use Ole Miss, but Ole Miss, the football Friday night lights type stereotype that gets painted about Southern culture. Mm. Yeah, so that's my first question. And let me see, Eric, you look like you're going to start. Well, I was like, I don't know if Marty wants to jump in here because, you know, I do think it's generationally specific uh, to go there first. But, you know, we're I think we're all of different, you know, age groups here um, slightly. There's some age differences. And so um, for me, I can just speak, you know, growing up in the 90s and early 2000s in uh, Mississippi, where I'm from. I, I know I definitely did feel a lot of pressure to uh, conform to that masculine ideal of what young boys in the South do. I did play football for a couple of years. Um, I played basketball. Um, I That's was sexy. By... What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, well, I, was a, I, was a, I was I was I was a wide <laughs> receiver, y'all. <laughs> I, I could run. Boy, oh boy, were you? Okay. I'm sorry. Um, but <laughs> anyway, but, you know, I decided to quit. I blew my knee out. I had an injury. And so I decided to quit football. And I had a coach tell me that my dad was going to be disappointed in me and not proud of me anymore. And of course he wasn't. Um, you know, that wasn't true. But there is a certain expectation, I think, for young young men in the South to conform to what it is that all young men do, whatever standard that might be. And in Mississippi, deeply conservative. Um, I grew up in a pretty rural area. Um, you know, it was tough, I think, for me to navigate, you know, coming into who I, who I am. Um, and I think I resisted it for a long time and, um, you know, dated, dated women and, had those relationships and um you know i was fortunate to have a really supportive family which is a very it's a privilege um i think anywhere still um but perhaps maybe being someone raised in mississippi um really fortunate um that i didn't have to confront um you know houselessness or anything as a result of um, my family you know finding out about me um and so, you know, that's kind of the journey I've been on. It wasn't always easy, but it was, um, you know, I was I was definitely more fortunate than than others I know, and, and that I know that I grew up with in Mississippi, for example. Well, and how old are you? <laughs> that's the question you're not supposed to ask. What generation? Right in. That yeah. How old <laughs> are like, you, oh, Eric? No. I'm I mean, 35. I'm 30, so I feel comfortable saying that. But Yeah, I'm 35. Yeah. And that's interesting because even in those five years, I feel like, you know, if I, I don't know, if I'd come out, you know, after Will and Grace or, you know, after some of these um, kind of cultural milestones that happen that, 
that sort of opened the conversation a little bit more, maybe it would have been different. I don't know. Um, but yeah, five years isn't that much. Marty, yeah, I guess right. you're going to have to answer your age next because it's I only suppose I do. I suppose <laughs> I do. So I'm 53. Um, okay. I was born like three months after Stonewall happened. And um, I, I have to, I have to define what the South means to be in my life because I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., not typically considered the South, but my part of the suburbs were very much Southern. Now, there's a dividing line across D.C., sort of Northeast to Southwest, and I grew up on the Southern side of that, literally across the street from tobacco farms. And both sides of my family had enslaved people, and both sides of my family had connections to uh, the Lincoln conspiracy and assassination. And at some point I realized my mom's family conspired, my dad's family included uh, Mary Surratt's neighbors, like how much more Southern do you want me to be? But I didn't feel really Southern until I moved down there. Um, until I went to school and after a detour in Michigan, I came to Georgia and Alabama in 1997. And that's really where I started to come out. And that's where I started to consider myself a southerner so after living in atlanta for 25 years i think you know i finally earned the mantle um but more in particular after writing about the south and understanding my place in it uh, you know having having been sort of on the fringes of lots of cultures for so long in dc being on the fringe of a southern culture on the fringe of a political culture and then you know being on the fringe of american culture as a queer person um it it makes you seek out a definition for yourself. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have any questions, email stephen.hemrick at glreview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And remember that they're offering an exclusive code with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So when you subscribe to the magazine, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. So that's seven issues instead of six. Again, just visit theglreview.org and click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR for your free issue. And not to stick to it stridently, but to understand who you are and where you fit in. And uh, you talk about Will and Grace and Eric, we have another sort of TV connection because you're from the hometown of Jim Henson and, mm -hmm. you know, Sesame Street started the year that I was born. 
uh, just put the knife further between my, my uh, ribs here. Um, but th that's that's the common cultural experience that we all have now. And I'm, you probably see the book over over my corner. That's kind of what I'm studying and researching now, how you know television became, created this own common culture. And we were actually lucky to benefit from that in our lifetimes as queer people. Mm -hmm. Wait, what, what book are you studying, Marty? Um, so you'll see the uh, Marx and Tannenbaum book on MTV. And then there's mm -hmm. uh, Steve Capsudo's book about uh, alternates, alternate channels about queer people represented in TV, particularly in that case on uh, sitcoms and, and entertainment television. Um, but what I'm working on and studying is how queer identity really developed on television through the 70s and 80s, particularly in news and, you know, particularly in, in cable television. So um, when I think of myself as Southern, like, yeah, that's a part of my identity and queer is a bigger part of it. But I'm part of this generation that, you know, we've kind of lived our lives in a public sphere that we could watch develop in front of our own eyes. Yeah. Well, and I'm really yeah. glad that we're, oh, sorry. Well, that we're just going in this media direction because I went to high school. I came out when I was a freshman in high school. So we're talking about like 2008 and it was when there was already a lot Sorry, of coming out. It's okay, Marty. <laughs> Don't worry. You're younger than my parents by 10 years. Sorry, mom and dad. I'm throwing you out there. Uh, but and they'll listen to, they're going to listen to this too, but um, no, they are very young in spirit. Um, but what I love is thinking that about Degrassi, there was coming out narrative. There was Desperate Housewives with Andrew and his yeah. coming out um, a lot. Almost every sitcom I remember growing up in high school, there was some kind of coming out. Again, it was um, mm. fractured. It wasn't um, what I would call now we're seeing the nuances of not needing to come out necessarily as the focal point. But it was mm -hmm. there, right? But I am kind of curious, yeah. and I don't know if this is where you're going, Eric, because I know you were going to jump in, but um, like you talked about being a football player or even just in the sports arena. Um, I mean, I was on a track team, but and I also worked at a gym, but I was not a football player, so I can't claim that. Um, but what's interesting is like, Marty, when you're growing up, there isn't the gay queer narratives in media but there is a lot of homoerotic um dressing and you know short shorts and i even remember <laughs> watching the carrie movie and like if they're in maybe it's three inch shorts um, but they weren't short then that was just they shorts, right <laughs> yeah but you have like that <laughs> physique must the muscular um what the male body should look like with gym culture, right? Because the 70s and disco era actually also is fueled by um, bodybuilding and by- Body awareness. Body awareness, yeah, so- All, all kinds of bodies too, yeah. People, uh, yeah, that, there weren't necessarily many positive interpretations of queer lives on television. And that's, that's part of the, you know, what I'm studying is this great coming out that was that was precipitated by HIV epidemic, but also because of this ubiquity of technology where people could finally see queer people on television because there was this explosion of channels that were available to them in ways that, you know, there were places that needed content. And they realized that cable was this kind of liberating force 
but but you're right that you know the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, it was sublimated, and there were it wasn't quite like the 50s where you had to get bodybuilding magazines sent to you at a post office box in a brown paper envelope. I mean, you can fully watch the love boats and there's, you know, shirtless guys all the time wandering around in there. Um, but it was, it, it, it was uh, not a liberating time necessarily, unless you were of the age to be aware of and to join in with an actual liberation movement, which were still kind of, you know, they're still kind of small, compact, loud, but, you know, you had to be in a major city also. And, and for its part, DC was not that because Washington has this transitional culture and few people want to take those kind of political risks, especially in that time when they're trying to become career politicos. So Washington wasn't that welcoming of a place. And, you know, it wasn't until I got to Atlanta until I realized what a city with, you know, a healthy functioning queer community looked like. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you're also, um, not to stick on your age, but it's, I think it's important nice. because we've had discussions here um, with someone who she's a journalist. Her name's Taylor. She was in Taylor Ferber in uh, Playboy um, posing with other journalists. But this whole episode with her, I got into the history of Playgirl and Playgirl comes out in the 70s. And um, who is the major audience? They're not women. They're actually gay men or queer men by men, those who are interested in men, interested in men. Um, so, you know, did you have, but you had to have access to it, right? I mean, Playgirls sold in well, newsstands. I mean, so the funny thing, I, I can vividly remember this, that you could reach up and touch a copy of Playboy and nobody would look twice, but they kept every other form of pornography that they might have carried, you know, particularly in my area of Maryland, it wasn't like it was, widely available to begin with, but it was plastic wrapped stuck high on a shelf. So the interesting thing about Playgirl, no matter, they didn't know at first what their audience was going to be. And it was kind of a thought exercise. Well, if there's a Playboy, there should be a Playgirl and it should have the opposite kind of content. And it, I don't think they realized for a couple of years who they were actually serving. And you know, I'm shocked to find that it's, it's still around. It's still an online publication, just, mm -hmm. you know, almost a hundred percent aimed at us. Um, so so it's interesting that the, the politics of the day dictated a publication where now it would totally be, you know, marketing driven. And we found this niche of people who are underserved and we're going to aim content exclusively. It wasn't that. It was just like, damn it, there should be a Playgirl. And they did it. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And it should and also have lots boy, of that. Yeah. And a Blue Boy and a Cruise magazine out of Atlanta. I mean, all these. Uh, lesser known, you know, periodicals proliferated in the era as well that, um, you know, we should also give props to. Yeah, and and well, those and... those are specifically geared and intentionally yeah, yeah. so to us to an audience for, for and, and kept and, and kept niche and they never had the intention of being on a newsstand right. like that. Whereas Playgirl thought, yeah, we're going to be the next Life magazine with a bunch mm -hmm. of naked guys. Mm -hmm. For well, a while, they were. There... Yeah. I'm seeing them on Instagram. This is where I think the power of social media has. We could there's all the negatives people talk about, but I like to hear talk about how many guests I've had from social media. That's how the connection happens. But there is a big network. And if anything, I find that Instagram like Marty, you brought it up, but Playgirls Online, Playgirl Plus, mm -hmm. I think is what they call it. But um, there's like Homa Extra um, that I don't really know the history about. 
but um, was that a 90s magazine? Which one was that? It's like Homo with an X. I don't know. I don't know I'll that, have to but, look at, yeah. but remember, I mean, you guys will be too young to know this, but there was a huge media recession in the early 90s when I started working in print publications. And a lot of these magazines just kind of folded or went out of business or merged mm -hmm. with others. It was one of the one of the many great reckonings in media throughout the years. That was a particularly devastating one from what I remember. The magazine that I worked at went from like 120 pages to 50 in one month. Wow. And all of a sudden you're thinking, what's your job going to be? And you know, it took a couple of years to iron that out. Yeah. Oh, it's a um, homo XTRA. It was a gay nightlife New York City magazine. Mm. From 1991 okay. to 2009, which actually that's a pretty long time. It's but, not a bad um, run. No, not yeah. a bad run. Um, but Eric, right? So mm -hmm. you were born in now Marty has revealed it, but I know in your bio, there's this awesome part where you say, I grew up in the hometown of Kermit the Frog um, with Jim Henson. Uh, so, you know, Marty's in the... I don't even know. You weren't in Prince George's County, Maryland, even. Oh, you were in Prince George. Yeah. Okay. Kind of, I know my Maryland. I grew up in South Jersey, so I would go to, you know, do that belt driving, which I still think is some of the most wild people. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, you're, like you're saying, you're almost, Marty, the ethics were more Southern, and I agree with you. There is right when you're outside of DC, even when you go to Alexandria, I felt this way. Very welcoming. It's not that, but people even had a Southern accent. Like there's more locals. Um, uh, but I'm just curious with Mississippi, Eric, and I know you are a different, you're my generation, right? We're millennials. Um, but Mississippi like is deep South. I mean, there's no mm. denying that. Like, this is not a border state. This isn't the transplants. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting, um, Marty, kind of talking about growing up in, in you know, the D.C. suburbs and kind of feeling a sense of southernness, but not always necessarily geographically, you know, positionality being southern, depending on how you look at it. Um you know, I grew up in, you know, the historian James Cobb calls it the most southern place on earth, the Mississippi Delta, um, for all kinds of reasons, good and bad with what we associate that that southernness with in terms of history and, um, you know, Jim Crow, white supremacy. Um, and so for me, I definitely felt shaped by being somehow deep south with all of these connotations of what we you know how we're raised and what things we learn and don't learn um but you know it's interesting because my family my dad's family actually immigrated in the late 19th century <clears throat> and so i don't have that sort of route that marty sketched out going back to the, the lincoln plot um and so maybe for some reason, that's why I had the, the familial support I did as I was growing up and coming into who I, who I am today. But yeah, Mississippi is a unique place. Um, it still is a unique place. It still receives most of our negative superlatives, you know, the, the poorest, the, um, the most unhealthy, all of these things that we talk about year after year. Um, and 
I, you know, we're, we're trapped in it in our history. And when it comes to Mississippi in a way that I don't know if we'll ever fully reckon with, despite, I know a lot of the great people there that are working on things um, to kind of make us confront all the things about Mississippi that are uncomfortable that we still need to deal with so that we're not at the bottom of the list anymore. Um, but yeah, it's definitely different than Maryland and it's definitely, however you define Southern, I suppose it's very Southern. Um, but I think part of what so many of us in Southern studies try to do is really complicate that, that definition uh, and mm -hmm. think about, you know, try not to get trapped in, in kind of a feedback loop of, loop of, you know, why something's so bad and try to find ways to, to, to think anew and, and challenge and, you know, reckon and, and uh, kind of validate the lives of people that are still living in Mississippi and that are striving to, you know, make queer lives and trans lives and all kinds of lives happen in that state um, that don't have the privilege or the luxury to, to get out or go to these urban spaces like Atlanta or, you know, somewhere else even, you know, New York or San Francisco. So anyway, I don't know if I answered yeah. your question, but I, no, yeah, no, I definitely yeah. agree I with you that Mississippi is very, um, very different than Maryland. It's very different than most places. You know, William Faulkner used to say that if you understood, if you understand Mississippi, you understand the world or to understand the world, you first have to understand something about Mississippi. Um, and so I kind of carry that with me that I feel like it's helped me understand a lot in life um, by being born and raised there, despite all the challenges that that entails. Yeah, well, and don't worry, you're gonna have the moment to blow the lid off the stereotypes of North versus South, because these are all messy, complicated analyses. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, and also, we just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off Use the code Ivory Tower for 20% off site wide on all of their books. So, our in our show notes, we have a link 
to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So enjoy your reading, everyone. Like, I don't agree. I don't believe in Northern LGBTQ culture is somehow more um, dynamic because I actually think we're in, um, I don't want to say the more visibility there is. Well, we can talk about it. I mean, maybe we should because I know, Marty, you begin, and I'll now plug, a Night at the Sweet Gumhead, which is Marty's book. And we'll talk about what Sweet Gumhead is because we'll have to do. Oh, Eric has it too. Okay. Uh, For just all a of rainbow you. footnotes. Oh, or, look uh, at all the footnotes. I love it. There, yeah. But um, you begin your preface with just such a powerful narrative moment that I always love, which is the author. And I try to even, you know, Eric, I know does this in his academic work, but you just stake your positionality. And I think that that is mm -hmm. so... Um, powerful for narrative style and who you are authentically, um, that you're not just writing objectively somewhere in a tower, um, but you're living in Alabama uh, when you write um, your preface, when you're reflecting back to Atlanta. And like we have here our states, we have Alabama, Mississippi with Eric, Eventually, we'll have Georgia. You know, Marty's now in Florida and, you know, not South Florida. He's not in Miami, for example. Um, you're in Pensacola, which is like completely northern. Lower Alabama. Yeah. yeah, almost. Yeah, probably closer to Alabama than definitely Miami. In all um, sorts of ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, but I grew up where Philly was 25 minutes to the neighborhood. That's where I went to Woody's, which I love. Shout out to them. One of the best. Gay you say Woody's, it's a gay bar. Woody's was a department store in D.C. Still yeah. gay, you know, but. Yeah. Well, very phallic. Uh, trust <laughs> me. Um, but, you know, I was an hour and a half from Manhattan, two hours to D.C. So. See, just the way you say Manhattan, I would identify you as Jersey because that's how my husband sounds. So. <laughs> really? Really? And he's from oh, Jersey. Yeah, but... Ooh, okay, we'll have to talk later. I need to know where. <laughs> okay, anytime I hear someone's from Jersey, it's like, okay, where are they in Jersey? Uh, but uh, so, you know, it was easy to get to different um, LGBTQ centers. I mean, not when I was right. very little, but... You know, now I'm on Long Island. I'm really quick train ride to Manhattan. So there's Boston. You know, the Northeast, I think, just operates differently with the cities are all really connected. Um, that's different than the South. I mean, you don't have the rail system to do that necessarily. So I'm just curious. There must be such an authenticity, though. Maybe this is my projection, but... Sometimes in these cities, not Philly, I would say Philly has more of a local flavor of LGBTQ culture, but like Manhattan, definitely, um, you can get lost easily, or it's now so spread out, it really is about your friend group, um, but, you know, Marty, when you open your book, you talk about going to Atlanta, uh, and you see all of these cowboys in white hats, white cowboy hats, and they're doing uh, line dances. And you felt seen because you knew that they were interested in men, like that community. So 
it seems like there's a uniqueness of individuality that might be different than a type of peer pressure that sometimes the Northeast can be a little more conformist. Um, and I don't want to like put off anyone who's from the Northeast because I am from the Northeast, but there's a lot of pressures. I feel the fire Island scene, the, um, the standards of trying to keep up. Like, am I off base here or is that a good read? Oh, I, I think the first, what you're talking about is the physical locale of what being queer is. And in the South, it's different. We're not constructed the way it is in the Northeast, just because of the density of, of people and where you can get to it. That's not saying that there aren't queer places in small towns in the South, but a lot of the, uh, let's said queer energy is to finding more people to have more fun with or to just coexist with more so you know that was my personal bi-weekly migration or however often i managed to make it in between work trips you know just go to atlanta there's a lot of people there never know what's going to happen you might meet somebody you might not meet that person um i did but you know it it, it was also um I, I just felt very vulnerable were I to go to one of the two places that I could go in Birmingham because I had a public job at a very high profile project that was being funded by lots of state money. And there were very tangible moments where people who worked in other industries in the state kind of applied the social pressure of you're like us, right? And I, I freaking hated that. And that was the thing that made me most uncomfortable about being there that was completely relieved by the time I got to Atlanta. So no matter how long it took, no matter how late it was that I had to leave that evening, Friday night, gone. I'm in Atlanta, come back a couple of days later. And it just, that physical impression of being in a place that was comfortable and that had this definable queer space. I never got to experience that in DC because I was 17 when I left town. And even though I was skipping school to go downtown during the day, it was to go to the National Gallery of Art because a nerd right so <laughs> i'm not i'm not like leaving my parents house at night to go to the gay bars down uh in southwest dc when they still existed there um but the physical location of queer space in the south is configured much differently and eric we've talked about this before you know just it, how what it means to actually be in a place that's queer versus um you know, a, a temporal space or, or, or a place that, you know, that where there's just such greater density. I think you talk about that a lot. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm really, one of the things, I guess one to the first point in terms of how it's different, I would just say the kind of circulation of desires and how they're enacted and, and how people find each other might be different. But uh, as, as three men who, you know, identify as gay or queer here, you know, men are going to find each other, Historically, I found each other. John Howard writes beautifully about this in Mississippi, for example, about how, you know, men would find each other without necessarily the organized spaces that we've come to think of as like bars, et cetera, that we go to, Woody's, what, you know, Sweet Gum Head, whatever it might be that we go to to find people. Um, so I do want to just kind of note that, that it's not like it hasn't always been happening and that people haven't been, you know, finding each other in these more rural spaces. Um, but I think Marty's point about the danger of it, um, whether it's for professional or economic reasons mm. or, you know, safety reasons, uh, I think that's a concern I even grew up with. I mean, I'm relatively young 
Um, but I remember my first um, gay bar um, officially was called Good Friends in New Orleans, and so a more kind of urban space. Um, and, you know, I've kind of written about it uh, in personal writing about what that space means to me. But um, I attempted the first time to go to a bar called Backstreet in, not in Atlanta, um, but in Memphis, Tennessee, which is about two hours from where I grew up. And I was too afraid to go in. You know, as I think I was, I don't even remember, 19 maybe. Um, and I was just too afraid because I didn't, I, I was alone and, you know, I didn't want, you know, I wasn't really out yet. All of those things that I think we negotiate as we're, you know, coming of age and, and kind of negotiating what we want in terms of our desires and how to enact them. Um, and so the spaces exist even in kind of less urban places. Like, you know, there's a bar called, there's a bar in North Mississippi called Rumors. There's, you know, places in Jackson you can go. There are places in kind of less populated urban centers in the rural South um, that exist and that we want to uplift and we want to continue to exist because they're so important for people. Um, but even even without those people, you know, people find each other um, historically and even today to do whatever it is you want to do with uh, another man or another woman. And then just to kind of bring this full circle, I think we have grinder, <laughs> we have scruff, we have all of these. Every week, I find something new. These geospatial locating apps that I. One of the thing, you know, they have all of their problems. I'm totally on board with criticizing them. But in the South, I think they have been so important to connect those, you know, younger um, gay men or, you know, questioning people to networks of, you know, friendship, of intimate encounter, of whatever it is. Um, because there are a lot of us in the South and just being able to find them, you know, find somebody like you um, can be life-saving and life-affirming. Um, so I think the, the the whole terrain has changed in the digital age in terms of what's possible. Um, but those urban centers like it, like Marty going to Atlanta from Birmingham, me going to New Orleans to my first kind of gay bars, they still are really important. Um, and I, I, I don't think that'll ever change, but I think the terrain of possibility is different now. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad, Eric, that you talked about um, just being nervous to go into that bar because I now, um, like, I know that I've brought up a stereotype about almost keeping up with the Joneses. I don't know what the LGBTQ slogan would be for that or phrase, uh, but I. Uh, Keeping up with the rainbow. I don't know if that works. Um, but the Fire Island culture, I actually now I'm really comfortable with it because I go now by myself sometimes. And I'm lucky. I only live 25 minutes from the ferry. So, um, and I love now going to LGBTQ spaces alone. I mean, I love when my friends come too. But I think that there is such an opportunity for me to learn people about people on Fire Island, those who live there. And there is a really welcoming community. I've actually learned sometimes when I'm with friends, we put up a wall unintentionally 
just as a group dynamic where then you're staring at the other group and you're thinking, am I going to approach this person who I think is attractive? I'm too nervous. Like sometimes I think when there's a group around you, the pressure is um, you make things bigger than they actually are instead of like just taking that chance of saying hi. Um, so like Marty, you having that individual solo into mm -hmm. this gay cowboy uh, saloon of sorts um, as a bar was so interesting because it seems like you really were entering a lot of spaces by yourself. Is that true? Like even in Atlanta? Oh, sure. Um, but the, the oddity is that a lot of my college friends had ended up in Atlanta. So I was actually going to Atlanta where they all were and not letting anybody know that I was coming to town when I wanted to just go and develop my own person. You know, I, I was coming out and growing up at the same time. And I was doing it late in, mm -hmm. relatively late in life, 27, 28 years old, and dealing with all the anxiety that was causing. I mean, a, a lot of it was economic. Like I was about to quit a job sell a house and move somewhere without a job and having to pay rent. So there was a lot of that, but it was also a lot of how am I going to integrate these two pieces of my life? Mm -hmm. And I knew which one had to come first, um, but I didn't know how, how the process would go. So, you know, I, I guess my tendency is just dive into the deep end, tackle the complicated stuff first and let everything else conform around that. So, you know, I, I was very glad that I chose Atlanta. Um, there was a moment where I thought, all right, maybe I'll go to Lauderdale. Maybe I'll go back to D.C. Um, I ended up in the right place for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that it ends up becoming a book at this stage of my life is just you know, it, it just resonates with me. It's just, I, I, I made the decisions for a reason. And then I was curious enough about the world around me and before me. I was able to find out all this fascinating stuff. And that's, you know, for me, I hear you talk about Fire Island and the community there. And I think about that story last summer where uh, they, uh, the collection of tapes from the summer before HIV was really widely identified, just to, you know, the mixes that they would play in the clubs in Fire Island in 1981. Now, that would make me curious. I'd want to go listen to those and then go find those places and grab a friend and go, you know, listen to some of that music in some of those places and, and, give some context. But again, that's because I'm a nerd and I would do that as as fun time. You know, if I go to Provincetown again, the next time I go, I'll go to some of the places where some authors have written some of their work, or maybe I'll just mm. wander down Commercial Street and maybe John Waters will almost hit me on his bicycle again like he did the last time I was there. Well, um... It would have been a privilege. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, no, no. And everyone wants to get hit by... A, you know, uh, gay icon like that. Right. Um, or run into Armistead Maupin and his husband and talk to them for a few minutes about mm -hmm. writing. You know, there's just things that you can do in gay places and gay and queer spaces like that that we can't do in other places. And I'd kind of guard those jealously. Hi, this is Andrew. So, you know, when I'm not here in the Ivory Tower boiler room, sometimes I'm actually invited to be on other podcasts as a guest. Well, there is one podcast run by Christian Garcia and um, his co-host, Nate, that I absolutely love. It is called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. So calling all you classic cinema fans out there and those who love 
queer theme cinema, which I think there's a lot of you who are listening right now where you've uh, perked up. So follow them on Instagram at that OL gay classic cinema. The first ever episode I was featured as a guest. It's the sound of music. I got to talk about being Captain Von Trapp in high school. And it's just such an exciting conversation. They've also featured discussions about Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, which features guests from uh, the podcast, The Garland Gab and Down the Yellow Brick Pod. There is a deep dive of Cinderella. And recently they had an episode on the film Giant starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and James Dean. And actually one of the uh, guests, Lauren Randall, I know from Stony Brook University's PhD English department. So shout out, Lauren. Um, you can listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's definitely such a great listen. So why not listen to it after you listen to this current episode on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room? Well, and there's so many artists, like you're saying, there's the writers the in the Northeast, there's the actors, there's, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's so interesting, all the different professions, architects, lawyers, uh, but I think that what I, I've been to Atlanta, um, I've been to the, um, I was there with my parents, so I was out, so I knew about uh, the gay neighborhood the lgbtq neighborhood um which i just recognized was by piedmont park because that's where i ran i was like doing this jog i'm like this is so beautiful that's my favorite i haven't been around to emory or other outskirts of Atlanta, but i find that that piedmont park area is just really stunning um but what's the actual area of the gayborhood of sorts like, what's the name of the area? Is there, like, a designation? Well, I mean, I think, his, I mean, Marty, um, I don't know if there's a designation, but um, I guess Midtown is historically the, the gayborhood, kind of Ansley, Midtown, around the park areas. But I don't know if we, you know, Marty, you can correct me here or add to this, but I don't really know if there's... Um, a kind of centrally organized gay neighborhood in Atlanta, you know, today or historically, it's always been kind of diffuse. Um, but Tenth and Piedmont, I guess, is where the Rainbow Crosswalks are. So maybe we count that. Yeah, I mean, we have made that a signifier in our life, yeah. in our recent histories. So Eric and I both work on this committee that is trying to identify these places in Atlanta that are historically queer and should be acknowledged and, if we can, preserved. And the thing is, Atlanta is a lot like Los Angeles. There's like seven different cities in search of a downtown. So yeah. there's a Midtown cluster. There's a Decatur. You know, Decatur has been sort of mm -hmm. you know, lesbian haven for decades, decades. Mm -hmm. um, Tucker is an up and coming neighborhood to the Northeast where a lot of people are, you know, equity refugees, basically, because they can't afford to live in Midtown anymore. Um, and Atlanta's suburbs sprawl as far as Athens now to UGA and as far north as the mountains like LJ and Blue Ridge to the gayest mm -hmm. cities in Appalachia you'll ever come across. Mm -hmm. So it's so diffuse because that's just what America is now. We can reach a gay place 50 miles away if we want to go up there for brunch. And that sounds really trite, 
but it's really true. We can take our culture with us. We're portable. And that's mm -hmm. why places like Provincetown and Key West exist in, in their modern iteration. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, Atlanta has these little nodes of like, you know, there's Ansley with where the Eagle is now. And, you know, there's what used to be the sports page in the Her in Heretic and the Cheshire Strip up there, which is undergoing a lot of changes. Um, you know, and there's Blake's and 10th and Piedmont. Um, there's East Atlanta that has um, yeah. some, you know, some gay bars and, and things over there. So um, it's, if you're, if you really want to do a tour of, you know, queer Atlanta, Andrew, um, you're going to need a guide and a car, access to a car. So just, you know. But the park is a good place to start yeah, for yeah. sure. Are you volunteering yourself, Eric, when I'm back in Atlanta <laughs> he, to go? Oh, would know of course. Of course. Okay. Of course. But, yeah. but, you, but you talk about the park, and it is one of the queerest spaces. And it's mm -hmm. in part because that's where they started arresting queer people for mm -hmm. lewd and lascivious activities when they weren't arresting straight people for doing the same things mm -hmm. at the same places. Um, but you know, it's 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 even further back than that. You know, it's a it's a designed park. It is it is a piece of the city that is cosmetically transformed and preserved to be something different. It's it's I, you know the act of creating a park is kind of queering a city's landscape anyway. So I always look at Piedmont Park as this beautifully artificial thing that we made. And queer communities can be that because you have to identify people and then you have to put them together and then you have to you know create a purpose within them. So yeah, I, I'll take the park. Yeah, yeah well, and I mean most, the park most is most beautiful thing the, in Atlanta. Yeah, and it's been a kind of gay queer space forever. I mean, I'm I'm working a little bit now on an article about Donald Wyndham. Speaking of Fire Island, um, you know, he and his partner Sandy went there. You know, for years had a house there. Um, it, Piedmont Park is all over his writing uh, from the 1930s and 1940s. So, you know, it is kind of if there is a center, I guess, to kind of a gay queer history of Atlanta, Piedmont Park is probably it. Well, and what so better place than a natural place, right? This is right. nature's well, own inspiration. And I don't think it's any coincidence because, well, like you're saying, parks in general, I love how you're saying, Marty, you're right. It is, these are constructed spaces when we think of, right, a park compared to wilderness or something that you can't traverse right. or enter into pathways. Um, but it was designed by New York City Central Park designer. I'm pretty sure. And yeah, Olmstead. Yeah. Yes, Olmstead. And that in New in Manhattan, we have um though the Brambles is the cruising, was the cruising spot in Central Park. So yeah, it kind of like replicates that history. And I think um what I'm really curious about is since you both, I mean, you're still in Atlanta, Eric, but what I wanted to talk about is I know Eric also sent me this really, it was great, um, an article called Queer Souths, and it's all about Randall uh, Keenan, who is an author, um, mm -hmm. and that queer imagination. But I did want to think, like, right, we're in 2023, and... I mean, you're in Pensacola, Marty. Eric, you're still in Atlanta. I'm here on Long Island. And I'm curious whether these, having Frank, it can be eroticized or not, but I think anytime we talk about 
LGBTQ identity and that imagination in any kinds of conversations with identity, like there always can be that hint of eroticism or the power of it. Um, do you feel that where you are geographically, you would be having this conversation regardless? Like, would you be open about Playgirl? Would you talk about, say, uh, cruising spots or um, even male uh, pornography actors who you might follow on Instagram? Like, do you think, especially teaching too, is maybe where I'm going with that? Because I would assume Emery, there is an openness around LGBTQ culture just because Alana has kind of been designated the safe haven for LGBTQ Southern people. Or when I went and visited there, I heard that narrative a lot. Like we went to Atlanta and we're from five hours away in the deep South because this was the metropolitan area for us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know in terms of teaching, I, you know, I, um, you know, I was actually having a conversation with someone the other day, so it's kind of fresh of mind. But, um, you know, a few years ago, I was recognized for creating a, like given an award, which I was happy to receive for creating a, a queer studies course where I teach. And it was the, the first kind of explicitly queer history course. Um, we have WG, WGSS uh, courses, um, um, but this was kind of the first of its kind in terms of like a queer literary cultural history course. Um, and so I was given an award for that. And I hadn't really thought that much about it until recent kind of events, uh, you know, the surveillance and curtailment of what we can and cannot teach and who can teach it and at what level and all of these conversations that are happening. I mean, right now in Georgia, you know, Senate Bill 88 is going to be discussed soon, which will, you know, try to control what teachers can and cannot teach when it comes to queer and trans topics, even to the point of what teachers can wear in classroom spaces. Um, kind of, you know, those conversations are part of the negotiation and part of what will be discussed and as the legislature considers that bill. And so for, for me, like, I feel really privileged to be able to talk, you know, and teach and, and do the things I have done so far in my career. Um, but I think we're nationally, I don't know if it's geographically specific, although Florida, Georgia, um, you know, South Dakota, is it Utah, some of these bills that have been happening, um, really targeting trans folks, most specifically, um, there is a sort of, I think, a national galvanization that we need to have um, about, you know, resisting these types of bills and, and kind of surveilling really of what we can and cannot teach. I personally haven't really felt like there's anything that I couldn't talk about or teach if it was done in the right way. Um, so for example, I taught a little bit of, not the full thing, but um, a little bit of sexual outlaw um, John Rishi's kind of documentary experimental text. And um, that is, if you've read it, you know, like that is not something that is, um, it, it's provocative, right? It's provocative. Um, and I didn't teach the full thing because I knew that I, you know, I didn't need to teach the full thing. I didn't feel comfortable teaching the full thing, but I also teach 
um, David Wanarovich, who's one of my, you know, artistic and literary heroes. And I, I think he's just so important for people to know about. And every time I teach him, I teach him in the same class over and over again. And every time we read a little bit from Close to the Knives, none of the students have ever heard of him. And so on, on some level, I feel like, yes, I'm privileged, but I also have a responsibility right, to bring in these, you know, queer heroes and people that have gone before that have done great work literarily, culturally, or, you know, artistically, activist work, whatever it might be. Um, so I don't know, I don't, I, I also kind of feel like I'm, um, and I'll stop talking, but I also kind of feel like I don't care. <laughs> like, I've, I just have this kind of spirit where, I kind of feel like a provocateur a lot of the time, you know, like even growing up, that was the case. My parents would tell me like, you know, um, maybe that's being a millennial being of our generation and kind of feeling like we could say things and have more protections than those that went before us. But um, yeah, I like to push the envelope. I don't know about you, Marty, but I like to push it. I just am immersed in all this stuff because of what I'm working on now. Uh, I'm working on a biography of Michael Hardwick, who was part of the Supreme Court case that continued to allow sodomy to happen across the country in 1986, inspired the March on Washington in 1987. And lo and behold, John Reshie wrote an editorial for the Los Angeles Times after the case was decided, mm -hmm. you know, warning saying, you know, this is the beginning of a regression. And, uh, you know, so many of the lawyers and the um, people from ACLU, National Gay Task Force, all these people who worked very hard on the Hardwick case at the time, I've spoken with, and and they say it's just you know we're we're echoing now, we're hearing ourselves again, we're having to say the same mm -hmm. things, particularly when Clarence Thomas and his Dobbs uh, opinion writes specifically about rolling back decisions like Obergefell's same-sex marriage and Lawrence mm -hmm. v. Texas, which you know gave us essentially one one of the one of the pieces of the equality puzzle. So Clarence Thomas wants us to go back to the days of Hardwick area era surveillance where police can come into your private home and arrest you for doing the things that we do in our relationships. Um, I, I don't, you know, I one very specific interview that I had, we both were in agreements like where's the where's the constitutional amendment for personal autonomy? You know, what is going to be the driving force that unites people across states when not every state is feeling the brunt of what's going on, like we are particularly in the South, but also sort of the Northern South, which is like South Dakota, Montana, those states that kind of mirror us politically. Um, one of the people I spoke with very clearly said, if they touch another one of us, we have to become ungovernable. It'll be a fight to the death and we have to win. And these are people who've already been through this. They don't want to go through it again. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. 
Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. Um, but they feel like we have to. Um, but I, I, I do more worry about the people who are at the front lines. Um, I went to uh, a Rotary Club meeting in Midtown Atlanta, where it tells you what Atlanta is when the Midtown Rotary Club host Charlie Brown, one of the famous drag impersonator or mm-hmm. drag performers in the country. Mm-hmm. And she was taking questions after I said, Charlie, are you safe? What's going on at your shows? Are people threatening you? And uh, I hate that I had to ask that question, but I worry about it. You know, all these people I got to know doing this book, and I really do fear for them now. Yeah, I didn't two years ago. Yeah, and just the the fact that you know the um, I, I wasn't able to attend them, but that the mayor's office of LGBTQ affairs in Atlanta has been hosting these sort of active shooter drills with um, you know the bars, like you know with the gay gay you know the queer community in Atlanta, like just to like train you on what happens, what you should do if this were to happen. Um, not to say that there are, you know, threats that have been made, but to Mar- to Marty's point, this is, you know, the reality we're living in, in this sort of regressive, reactionary state of, um, that is, you know, this violence that is the threat of the rhetoric and the political, you know, happenings that are going on, you know, what people are saying and what they're trying to put into place in terms of policy. So... Yeah. But at this Where point, I assume that these bars have gotten threats. And if I decide to go out to one, I would act accordingly. But it's, again, for me, too, it's like 1997 in Atlanta, after the mm-hmm. Olympic bombing and after the other side lounge was bombed, um, mm-hmm. there were metal, detract- metal detectors in the bars for months afterwards, because they still hadn't caught Eric Robert Rudolph. So I would go to hoedowns or three-legged cowboy or something in Atlanta, and you'd have to go through a metal detector to get in. And that also felt upset. It kind of felt like my high school because my high school was an edge case of security as it was, but um, it was not, it made it less welcoming. And that's, that is exactly what those spaces are supposed to be about. And, and, you know, this is not an Atlanta specific issue. I mean, I know that, I mean, what's happened recently in Colorado that we've had to deal with and um, the kind of, way in which we're trying to galvanize ourselves and prepare ourselves for what's continuing to happen, you know. So. Yeah. Do you feel... Well, last night, I'm sorry to, sorry to interrupt again, but I just had an interview yeah. last night with an 86-year-old man who was pivotal in keeping Atlanta, you know, in, in Atlanta's bar community in the 80s during the advent of the AIDS epidemic. And you know, he talked very specifically about well, we're having to do all this all over again probably never thought he'd have to see this again in his life do you feel that i mean that it does seem though there's such a power 
of resisting this these I mean, you're calling it, Eric, surveilling systems or surveillance, but policing, right? We could bring that into the frame um, work of all of this discussion. But it really does seem that even I'm seeing videos in South Dakota um, in we're seeing all of these council meetings just full of uh, opposition to not have LGBTQ people's rights restricted. I mean, even... In New Jersey, where I grew up, um, the school district, like, I think it was one parent, maybe a few parents, but just to give you a perspective of my high school, and I hope it's okay if we go, is it okay if we go for a few minutes? Because, okay, I know I'm a little over our time, uh, but I um, right, grew up right outside of Philly, never thought this would happen, even though it's happening in all school boards across the country. But uh, one parent complained about the bluest eye being assigned. And this is in a district of over 700 in a high school class. So like, it's a huge class, a big district, uh, 50,000 people in my town, um, which I think could be a city in certain um you know, Southern areas or even just in the country. Um, but this one parent somehow convinced the board to um, take the bluest eye and censor it from the curriculum and get rid of it. Um, and I'm just thinking, what is happening? Like, how does that one parent who then admitted to not ever reading the bluest eye in full? And I'm thinking, wait, you're counting. You're saying you're against this because you're seeing it probably on conservative news to do this. Um, and then you admit you don't read it. And now the board is saying we are going to remove it. So is the board doing that because they were intimidated? Because that's what it seems like. There's a lot of peer pressure right now of maybe if we just appease this group, like, um, or those who buy into what is so upsetting, the whole like trying to say drag kings, queens, LGBTQ people, like you said, Eric, the trans community has really been faced with um, hate crimes and just rhetoric about grooming and just things that have no, uh, has no correlation and is just these uh, dog whistle terms to dehumanize trans people and drag queens and LGBTQ people. Like, do you think that, I know this is a long, I'm like laying out a question, but it is, it's so frustrating because um, we know that it's not based in any fact, but also why are you censoring ideas and why are you letting just the few people uh, dictate the culture? That's what I don't understand is what are you so scared of? Because guess what? You give them their way. Now they're going to think they can ban even more books. Like, I just, I don't get it. Yeah. yeah, I think the forces of dehumanization are winning at the moment. They're winning the narrative and we have to come back with a different narrative, offer something, persuade, you know, there's, um, I can't remember his name, but there's this great book that I just read. Um, Girda Darhas, I forgot how to say his name, but the persuaders, um, it's all about the power of persuasion and how um, we're, we're losing that, right? And the forces of dehumanization are winning and we're not able to persuade them. 
you know, back to a different side of things or to a, just to even see it slightly differently so that we're not banning books, et cetera. And, you know, I do think the focal point of this being about education and our, you know, what's getting taught, I actually think that is um, part of the problem here, but not for the reasons that they are articulating, right? That people are afraid of what they don't understand and they're not even reading these books, as you mentioned. Um, and so I think we do have a kind of education problem, but it's not one in which, you know, it's because, you know, the narrative that they want to to have of like grooming and indoctrination and that that's what's happening. It's just we want to control what subjects we think are appropriate to even be considered in a curriculum in the first place. Um, and, you know, wanting to control the narrative and dehumanize anything other and different. And that's, you know, it's not an old narrative. It's not an old playbook. Um, but I do think, you know, that force seems to be the loudest and the most vocal, even if there's only one person doing it, as you mentioned at the moment. Um, but, you know, I just want to say this is something I tell my students sometimes. It's a quotation from Garth Greenwell, who I love, you know, his work so much. Uh, speaking of eroticism and all the stuff that he writes about, um, but who's actually originally from Kentucky, which is an interesting, you know, Southern connection. We won't um, hold it against him, though. I know. But he says, uh, I heard him say in a podcast once, you know, queerness is this force that really or reorganizes the, the, the lines, the usual lines by which we organize our lives. And so when, you know, my students come to me or people are talking to me and they're like, I, I want to resist this, I want to resist this, I just say use the force, right? because it's like use the force of queerness like we have community we have connection we can rewrite this narrative there is something we can do there are organizations you can get involved with you know these this dehumanizing narrative may have the the pulpit as it were may have the microphone at the moment but it you know look at our history look at the fact that we can we can change uh, mm -hmm. and we can re-grab the narrative so um, I do think we get kind of trapped in this all is lost mentality sometimes but you know, read the bluest eye, y'all. Like I read yes, that book yes. when I was in high school and it changed my life. Like I did my undergrad thesis on Toni Morrison. Like what's wrong with y'all? Yeah. Well, there's my Southern coming and especially, out. Yes. But I agree. All is not lost at all. I mean, I really think that not to sound uh, Pollyanna naive about it, but I do think that like just even this platform or hearing from both of your perspectives and people are pushing back, right? That didn't happen decades ago. There wasn't pushing back. Um, pushing back in South Dakota, in Alabama. I mean, in every state there's be being, no, you're not going to take away our LGBTQ agency. No, you're not going to go after our transgender child or brother or sister, friend, whatever it may be, that um, people are not quiet now, which is so important to stand up for progressive views. But I also think too, you know, as we conclude, like what Marty, your work with Sweet Gumhead taught me with all your interviews that you've brought up during this discussion, Eric, with your pedagogy um, and your, um, work on authors, the queer genealogy, um, and mix with their Southern fiction and their queerness, that it's really all about um, the power of telling your story, of that voice, of your experience. But I think um, 
that those who, like you said, and are scared about communities they don't know. I will say, when I know I also am conversing day to day with people, especially social media, they'll see clips from the podcast even, or my mm -hmm. queer work, um, my gay voice, which is so open, that they'll write, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Or even that it's very hard. I still believe this, even though I know there are people, there are haters, you know, I know there are haters in life, but when there's someone that you talk to and maybe they just don't understand that community, that just being your authentic self, which I know is hard to do, depending where you are in the country, um, they usually aren't going to deny your humanity face to face. Usually not. Um, and I find that I call it deceptive progressivism, which is like being so authentically open that you're not maybe going to change who they vote for, but you're going to give them a face of, oh, wait, I'm thinking of censoring this book, but I know a person who recommended that book to me. Hmm, maybe I, it isn't that bad, right? And I think that that power is here, like is so important. Um, and yeah. it's in all of the work you're doing, both of you. So I want to thank you for that because all is not lost. Let the queer Garth Greenwell force win. Uh, Let the force awaken and continue. Yes, yes. Well, I want to thank you both, Marty, Eric. I um, am so happy to consider you both part of my community. Um, can't wait to continue conversing. Marty, for your next book to come out. Eric, for your book to come out. Maybe we'll have to do this. We'll definitely do this again, the three of us, with your books. San Francisco and, next year, right? Yeah, there we go. San Francisco next year, in person. In-person interview. I like it. Uh, we're all going to just, well, have random people stop by. Uh, <laughs> uh, at the table. Maybe John um, Waters on his bicycle will pop through, yeah. Oh no! On one I of mean, us over at least, please. Well, it depends on if it's a nice lawsuit. You know, <laughs> I might even throw myself in front of the bike. Uh, okay. <laughs> on that note, uh, thanks, Eric and Marty, and for everyone listening out there, I'm sure you all um, have been typing regulars rigorously. Rigor. Wow, I can't say that word today. Rigorously. That's not right. Rigor. No. No, that is right. It just sounds. I odd. think you nailed it. Yeah, I did. I okay, I'm, yeah. I think I'm like now into my uh, too much caffeine uh, yeah. brain. Uh, okay, well, everyone out there, uh, definitely, you know, reach out to Eric, reach out to Marty, um, get their works. It's all in the show notes. Um, you'll see their social media. Follow them, and yeah, until next time. Okay, thank you. To this was really really fun. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the executive director. I want you all to follow us on social media because there's so many video clips that we share and so many photos about these episodes. Follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Follow us on Twitter 
at Ivory Boiler Room. Follow our Facebook page, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. For $5 a month, you get ad-free episodes, our video interviews, the True Crime and Academia bonus episodes, and all Ivory Tower Boiler Room bonus episodes. Thanks for buying a coffee for me. And thanks to an amazing team. Thanks, Mary. She's our chief contributor. And thanks to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Spring interns, Andrea, Caitlin, Sarah, Sheila, and Rosie. See you all again in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. <laughs>